You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is called Reference Point. Hello my radio friends, welcome to the program today. Recently I was in in the outback with a group of friends in western New South Wales. It was cold and clear and at night when we looked up into the sky we could see many bright stars. It reminded me of a time when our children were younger. Our second son was studying neurophysiology at university and had a good friend who was studying medicine. We invited Patrick, the friend, to come on a four-wheel drive trip where we went cross-country to Farina near Lee Creek, then around the top of Lake Torrens across to Woomera. For Patrick, this was a completely new experience. One night, while sitting around the campfire, Patrick remarked, I didn't know there were so many stars in the sky. Up until this time, he'd only lived in cities, mainly in Hong Kong, where all the ambient light and pollution prevents seeing a clear sky. Well, anyhow, back to Western New South Wales. I asked my friends, could you tell me in which direction where you would find south? They made some guesses, but nobody was right. So I ask you, can you work out south by looking at the stars at night? Well, here's the answer. Look up at the stars until you find two bright stars and near them a kind of a cross. The two bright stars are called the pointers as they point to the southern cross, not visible in the northern hemisphere. The southern cross consists of five stars the main ones being at the top and bottom and two others at each end of the arms of a cross. The cross is not necessarily standing vertically. Sometimes it lies on its side, depending at the time of the year. To find south, you must check the distance of the vertical, that's the longer axis. Then you draw an imaginary line three and a half times the length of the vertical axis extending in a straight line out from the bottom star. Then you draw an imaginary line dropping straight down to the earth, and that's where south should be. When the early explorers traversed our land and navigated the seas around the continent of Australia, they used a device known as a sextant during the day to find their position. The sextant relied on the sun as a point of reference. At night, the point of reference was the Southern Cross. Locally, when moving about in the area where you live, you would use points of reference such as certain buildings, trees, roads, hills or waterways to know where you are. But you know, everyone needs a point of reference. Morally, we need a point of reference, some guide to indicate what is right or wrong in order to determine what is acceptable behaviour. 
In modern times, there's been a distancing from what used to be the golden stand of behaviour, God's law, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Increasingly, what we now have is a consensus of opinion. If the majority of citizens regard a course of action as acceptable, then it's considered legal. And this is known as relative truth or relative law. With this, what may be acceptable today may not be acceptable in the next generation. For example, the recent plebiscite on same-sex marriage, where the majority voted in favour, has become legal, although, according to the Word of God, it is unacceptable. Fifty years ago, it would have been unacceptable. Centuries ago, it was taught that the sun revolves around the earth. It was also mainstream opinion that the earth was flat. In each case, majority opinion was wrong. And majority opinion is very often wrong. The true moral reference point is the Ten Commandments. These outline was what is acceptable and unacceptable moral behaviour. Besides that, they originated with God, the ruler of the universe, who is much more intelligent, powerful or wise than any human being. Furthermore, the Ten Commandments is a beautiful declaration of human rights, protecting you from others and protecting others from you. I find it really strange when Christians say that those same Ten Commandments were done away with, abolished at the cross when Jesus was crucified at Calvary. The implications of that particular view are that there is nothing to delineate what sin is. And if that was the case, no law means no sin, and no sin means there is no need of a saviour to save us from our sins. The no law, no sin concept, it had, how it was in the outback where my friends and I were. Up there, there are no speed limits, no stop or give way signs, no white lines, nothing like that on the tracks. There, it's impossible to break the road laws because there are none. The springboard giving rise to that false doctrine of the law being abolished is a bad misunderstanding of Colossians 2.14 which says, He, that's Christ, forgave us all our sins having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, this is an important statement. But when you consider that the moral law was written by the finger of God on two tables of stone, such would be impossible to nail on a cross. But the real point is, the truth is that it was the ceremonial law about forgiveness of sins through the sacrifices of animals that was no longer needed. 
because Jesus, to whom those sacrifices pointed, was the complete and ultimate sacrifice. The ceremonial law was written on parchment, possibly leather, and instead of being placed in the Ark of the Testimony, it was on the outside of the Ark, signifying its temporary nature. In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus proclaimed to his disciples that he would be going back to heaven to prepare a place for those who commit their lives to him. In verse 2 he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, about any issue of importance like this, Jesus always informed his followers. So if the moral law was to be abolished, did Jesus have brain fade and forgot to let his disciples know about that? Well, I don't believe that's the case, because the moral law was never abolished. In fact, what Jesus said was exactly the opposite, and it's recorded in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19. And here are his words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It is ridiculous to claim to be a Christian who loves the Lord while believing God's law, the reference point, no longer applies. In fact, Jesus said much stronger words than that. He said that those who ever set aside God's law would be least in his kingdom, in other words, outcasts. It is ridiculous to claim to be a Christian to love the Lord, to believe God's law is tossed out. Because Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The proof of love is more than pretty words. It is obedience. Jesus is our example. So what did he do? Well, in John fifteen ten, he said this, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now, I'm fairly certain most of us have had, at some stage, been a passenger in a car or bus, and have been taken through unfamiliar territory. Any reference points, unless you're really observant, don't mean a great deal. Yet you still have a different reference point, different from the law that is, 
and that's the driver or the guide, depending on the particular situation. Because you trust the driver or guide, there is no need to be anxious about getting lost. And this applies in a spiritual sense also. There is no concern about being lost for eternity if you are led by someone whom you know knows the way to eternal life. Jesus is that driver, that guide. In John 14 verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You notice he said, I am the way. As our reference point, he not only shows the way, but is the way. So what does it mean then that he is our way? Well, first off, he addresses our very human instinct to know where we are going before we start a journey. The disciples wanted to know the next step, the next turn, the ultimate destination of where this journey in faith would lead. When we have a long trip ahead of us, we want to turn on our GPS and get an idea of how long it'll take and the roads will travel to get there. We determine the best, fastest routes and then start our journey. Thomas was looking for the same kind of information. We're going to stop here and have a little break and go on straight afterwards. Turn your eyes
Just before the break, I mentioned that we'd like to know the destination and the route that we'll be going on when we go on a journey. And I mentioned that Thomas was looking for that sort of information too. But you know, Jesus makes it clear that we won't know the defined way we're supposed to travel in life. We are instead tasked with simply knowing and trusting Jesus daily and walking in faith that he is the way. When we abide in him, we will not know a defined course, but we can rest in the comfort of faith that he will lead us exactly where we need to go as we walk in him. Now, this leads to this other meaning. In John 10, Jesus compared himself to a good shepherd. When he's brought out all his own, this is John 10, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Now, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So here Jesus is comparing himself to a shepherd and us to his sheep. Sheep don't choose their own path to safety and protection, but rely on the shepherd to guard and care for them. In order to be safe, we have to trust the shepherd and not wander off on our own adventures and try to find our own way. That will lead us to danger and pain. But when we follow Jesus, he leads us to exactly where we need to be. Finally, he makes it clear that he is the way to the Father, and by extension to heaven. He says that he goes to prepare a place for us, and this suggests that after we've completed the journey of this life, and if we've been faithful to him, we will be given a place of rest where the Father is. Horace Venden, a preacher-writer, likened his journey of life as to be driving a car to the holy city, and his is a modern-day parable. And here's what he says. He's driving along, and approaching from the opposite direction comes a semi-trailer loaded, loaded with hay with a pitchfork sticking out at top of the load. This represents the devil who delights in destroying God's people. The semi forces the car off the road and it ends up in a ditch. Then comes a kindly man from apparently nowhere and helps get the car back on the road. This man represents Jesus. He asks the car owner if he would like him to drive and the owner lets him take the wheel. On the way, another semi loaded with hay comes along, but instead of forcing the car off the road, it's unable to, 
because the driver has a power that makes the semi stay on its own side. This happens a number of times, and the car owner now decides to take the steering wheel being confident that he can handle the oncoming semis loaded with hay. All goes well for a while, until another semi comes along forcing the car into the ditch. The kind man helps get the car out of the ditch and asks, Would you like me to drive again? Consent is given, and they together continue the journey toward the holy city. Another semi loaded with hay approaches, but like before, it's unable to force the car into the ditch. The owner thinks to himself, There's really something special about my driver. But after a while of smooth sailing the, uh, along, the owner requests that he might drive again. Like before, while he drives, the semis force the car from the road. At last he realises that he must let his driver take the wheel, because when he drives, all is well. Eventually the destination is reached, but only because Jesus was at the wheel. That parable illustrates our walk in life. As long as Jesus is in the driving seat on life's journey, things will turn out well. But when we want to follow our own schemes and plans, disaster happens. This program today is about reference points. There are two reference points that we must have. There's God's law and Jesus. They go together. It's no wonder that the prophet John was given the following information to share with mankind and he was speaking about those who will receive eternal life. And you'll find this in Revelation 12, verse 14. He wrote this, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. My dear listeners, make these two reference points yours. <laughs> 